Why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plot which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times, but your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all of his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses, deceit, and oppression. Under his tongue, mischief and wickedness. He sits in the dark places of the villages. In the hiding places, he butchers the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He works in a hiding place like a lion in his den. He works to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws them into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and by the unfortunate fall, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. But arise, O Yahweh, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it. You have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. So break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. This is the word of the Lord. bow our heads and pray that God would make this psalm come to life in our own hearts. God, we know that you are not far off. You are not distant. You have not hidden your face from us. You have revealed yourself through the face of your son, Jesus Christ, and we see him in your word. Continue to show us his face that we can turn our eyes away from all that ails us, all that distracts us or discourages us, pulls us into despair, and we can gaze upon him in his beauty and be drawn to confidence that he will accomplish his purposes. He will rescue his people, and we will live in peace with him forever. Show us Christ. Be 
our vision through Psalm 10. For the glory of our risen King Jesus and our glory in him. Amen. I tend to uh, be someone who might overanalyze things just a little bit, something that Pastor Jake is very well aware of, which often makes it difficult to get me to come along on a task and get things done. I get caught in this mind trap of worst case scenario and I don't move forward on things. And this tendency was obvious in my life even from a very young age, like when I was trying to ride a bike, learn to ride a bike. Some things are a lot more difficult the more you focus on the task itself, like riding a bike. You can think about all of the the mechanics of the forces involved as your feet are pushing on the pedals and your hands are pulling on the handlebars. You think even more about the, the energy that's transferred from the front sprocket by the chain to the rear sprockets that turn the wheel. And then you think about all the, the treads on the tires and are, do you have the right tread for this kind of surface? And how are all of these things going to keep me upright so I don't fall down and hurt myself? And thinking this much about what you're doing will simply lead you, as it did me, right into the back of a parked car. My dad reminds me of that often, actually. What you really need to do to ride a bike is pick your head up, keep your gaze ahead of you in the direction you want to go, and commit yourself to the laws of nature to work with your effort to move you progressing forward. But fear makes us always think about the wrong types of things, the wrong efforts. In high-stress situations, we freeze up. We give all of our focus to things that can't actually solve the problem. And that only compounds the issue. So if we're in conflict with another person, all we can think about is spending inordinate amounts of time processing how the other person is at fault, how the other person needs to change. We blame them for our own unhappiness. We start to see things all around us as this huge threat. People we trust become a threat. And we invent silly ways to avoid that ancient dragon that's lurking around every corner seeking to destroy us. We realize he's such a formidable foe that we could never stand against him. But if God is sovereign, and he is, And if he has promised to care for us, and he has, then we must see every single difficulty, every challenge in our lives as a call to shift our our attention away from all of these things that we think will hurt us and instead put our eyes on God, trusting his commands over the laws of the world to work through us, within us, to change our lives, to move us in the right direction. If God is the king of all circumstances, it demands we stop complaining about other people as the problem and look in the mirror, not so much as though we have things that we contribute to the problem, though that might be wise, but look in the mirror to see where you are putting your hope for rescue. This is the emphasis of Psalm 10. 
David faces an enormous challenge. Wicked people are plotting to kill him. His life is at stake here and the lives of people he loves very much. The more, but the more he focuses on all this wickedness around him that causes his pain, the more it compounds his despair. And it's not until he shifts his gaze back up onto the sovereign creator of the world that it changes his heart. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem immediately, but it gives him peace. It gives him confidence to face this challenge, optimistic for victory. So Psalm 10 calls all of us to make that same shift in our lives, to yield to the divine king to slay your dragons. Yield to the divine king to slay your dragons. This psalm will make that point in, in two parts. I'll split it into verses 1 through 11 and 12 to 18. David laments in verses 1 to 11 the absence of God in the midst of his trial and his struggle. He's like a victim of the dragon. The more he focuses on the wickedness all around him, thinking that God is distant, the more it causes him to, further, to go into further despair and discouragement. And the, the wickedness of the people around him grow in power and influence in his eyes. But then there's a great shift in verses 12 to 18. He's no longer a victim of the dragon, but he's a victor over the dragon. When you set your eyes firmly on God, on his throne, it changes how you see everything around you, how you experience the world in all your troubles. It gives you confidence to run into the battle, certain of victory. This is quite an, emo an emotional roller coaster ride of a psalm, drawing us into David's despair downward toward the darkness. And then it bursts upward toward the heavens with confidence in the heavenly king. So we're going to begin that ride by reading just verse 1 and set up the perspective of the victim of the dragon. He writes, he sings, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So the, the first verse of each of my two sections here kind of sets the stage for how to see the rest of the verses that follow. How, it's like putting on a pair of glasses to give you vision into what David is seeing in his life at this moment. So we'll read these first 11 verses through the lens of God being distant, far off, hidden. Is God distant? Is he really hidden? No, not really. It's one, but it's one thing to say he's not hidden and another way to, another to act on what you truly believe. How you act is what reveals what's truly in your heart. When something bad happens to us, our natural impulse is to act as though God has left us to fend for ourselves. And knowing that we don't have the wisdom or the strength to overcome the whole world that's coming in on us, it just leads us on this downward spiral of despair, thinking that the enemy is too great, thinking that others have so much more power over us than they do, thinking 
that we are stuck like this forever. And you know what all that thinking does? It leads you into the back of a parked car or far worse. When we think that God is distant or that he's small, our, our natural design, the way he made us, is to put something on the throne. And if we've put God off the throne, then we put something else there. And people become really big in our lives. And all of their faults and all of their failures become huge threats to us. And this is the progression then of the first 11 verses. The dragon grows in his power and influence. It starts off small, you see in verses 2 to 5, just explaining this wicked person as a, as a schemer. Verse 2 says, this wicked person devises schemes to pursue the poor. It's not necessarily someone who's poor financially, that doesn't have a lot of money, but the word poor here means poor in spirit, downtrodden, afflicted, oppressed. And the wicked person, in arrogance, he says, thinks he's so much better than all of these people. He has the right to keep them all under his thumb. Verse 3 says he boasts in his own great ideas as though the reason why everyone else is so poor and pathetic is because they're just lazy and stupid. And the reason he's so rich and influential is because he's so industrious and wise he thinks so highly of himself in verses 4 and 5 that he renounces God. He curses God. He thinks he's above the law. All his thoughts are as if there is no God. God is so high, so dis distant. His commands are just way above everything that they don't really matter here. God doesn't really see what's going on in this world. And so with that attitude... Now his wicked schemes start to come out in wicked speech. At least when they were just internal musings, they weren't so bad. But verses 6 and 7 show the next progression in this wickedness. Starts as wicked desires in the heart and comes out into wicked words. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This guy says in his heart, there's nothing that can move him. And so his lips begin to speak wickedness toward others. He doesn't just think evil thoughts anymore, but curses, lies, manipulation are now coming out of his mouth. He proclaims his desire for mischief and iniquity. Mischief isn't just like some practical joke gone a little too far. It means he wants to cause harm to people. He verbalizes his wicked schemes. <clears throat> Finally, in verses 8 through 11, we see the end result. His pride in thinking that he is above God turns into this wicked scheming that turns into wicked words, and now they progress toward wicked action, ambush, oppression, murder. This is the result of a heart that rejects God and exalts himself into God's place. We see all these terrible things on the news. If you follow the news, I just recommend turning it off. Because you hear all of this wickedness and you think, where did this come from? 
It just seemed to come out of nowhere. And then there's politicians arguing all the time what to do about it. And they, they propose all these laws to try to prevent such things from happening again. But all their efforts are in the wrong place. When you're giving all the attention to the wicked activity of some tyrannical, dragon-like sociopath, you're missing the root of the issue. More laws addressing the end of the wicked progression aren't going to accomplish much. All they're going to do is make more weak those who are already helpless and embolden the arrogant who already think they're above the law. People are always surprised when like, school shootings happen. Like it just came out of nowhere. Oh, I thought he was such a great guy. But this psalm gives us insight into the progression of such wickedness. It shows that there's always warning signs. And it always begins with the rejection of God and his authority over us to speak into our lives, to know that we will be held accountable. This develops then an internal boasting and wicked scheming. And eventually, if, if you dig into some of these people's lives, you find out they wrote down, they have journals, they put on social media, they talk to friends, verbalizing their wicked schemes. But every step of the way, nobody stopped them. God didn't stop them. Family and friends didn't stop them. Their school or the government didn't stop them, turn them aside. So it just further emboldened them to amplify and enact these prideful schemes. This is the progression of a heart in its pride that renounces the Lord. And notice how the psalmist uses many words here to speak of secrecy. He's lurking, he's hidden. Tying it all the way back to the original questions in verse 1. Does God see any of this? It's not really that nobody sees what he's doing, but people see it and they're not doing anything about it. It seems like he's getting away with lying and stealing and oppression and murder. The more evil he does, the more it strengthens him. After committing these great atrocities, verse 11 reveals this wicked man's boast. God will never see it. He thinks he's invisible. Nobody sees him doing these things. He thinks he's invincible. Nothing can stop him. He is like God himself. What a tragedy that this image bearer has become so beast-like, so dragon-like. His transformation into Satan's likeness is complete. And what hope do poor, innocent, helpless people of God have against such brazen evil? But I want to shift your attention away from this guy's wickedness before we crash ourselves into a parked car. By now, after spending so much time focusing on this evil man in verses 1 through 11, you may have already forgotten that this psalm isn't even about him. This psalm is not meant to help us identify and restrain wickedness in society. But this is how we think when we start with the assumption in verse 1 that God is distant, that he's hidden himself. When we assume God is far off... 
in our eyes, the progression of wickedness gets darker and darker and darker, surrounding us, sucking away all of our hope. And then we're left grasping for any, any kind of help we can find in drugs, in pornography, in alcohol, in all kinds of foolish efforts to fi find security and safety. The person who's so wicked becomes so much more powerful, bigger, stronger. All of our attention then gets focused on this evil one. Even if we rightly recognize it as evil, it just becomes the dominant force in our hearts and all that we can talk about until it leads us to our own destruction. And as I think about this, it makes me wonder, was the man in these first 11 verses really that wicked? There are some people that are that wicked in this world. Or is this psalmist just simply forgetting that God is sovereign? And he's allowed that fear to grow the threat in his mind to dragon-like proportions. It's so easy at this point of our own despair to, for that boastful statement in verse 11 to become the statement of our own weak hearts. Maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe God has forgotten. Maybe he has hidden his face and he doesn't see what's going on in my life. And now we're in the bottom of the pit. The dragon has won. There's no way out. But how do we forget about God? How did we get here? And we turn to verse 12. The shift from verse 11 to verse 12 is miraculous. It's just easy to read these scriptures, move from one word to the next, one phrase to the next, one verse to the next, and not notice a dramatic change. I want you to feel the weight of this abrupt transition. David is feeling like God, the creator of the universe, has abandoned him. And that this wicked person, this evil pursuer, has gained such absolute wicked control over his entire life. There's nothing that can rescue him. I've had many counseling conversations with you where you have expressed to me that you've prayed and prayed and prayed for years and not gotten an answer from God. Or you tell me about some struggle you're having, and as you explain it to me, your words are so focused on the impossibility of the problem or the, how difficult that other person is. Your entire mindset is trapped on this, in the same pattern of despair, this same downward spiral. Whether or not the person harming you is really that powerful, really that wicked, that is all you can see. And when that's all you can see, just like the wicked person of the first 11 verses, you also have no thought for God. Your world is crashing in around you. It's so easy to forget that you really can call out to God for help and he will come for you. But it's not our natural impulse in fear to do that. 
And why would you call out to God for help when you think you've already stated in verse 1 that he's so far off? He doesn't care. So what happens in verse 12 is miraculous. It's a miraculous work of God in David's heart to begin to turn his eyes off of his problem, out of his own heart, and to see God on his throne. God gives him a new perspective as a victor over the dragon. Read verse 12 again. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. How, how does he suddenly get here? The very first word in this verse indicates what kind of miracle we're witnessing. David's main problem was not the wicked enemy pursuing him. His main battle was not with the dragon without, but the dragon within him. He, too, did not trust God. He, his heart also was dead toward God. He needed a resurrection. This word arise is the same word Jesus uses in Mark chapter 5, verse 41, when he raises that little girl from the dead, that sick girl who died before he could get there. And he walks up to her and says, Talitha kum, kum, rise. And she got up and started to walk. And she ate. She, she lived. Now, here, it's David asking God to rise as though God is dead. But the irony is that God is not dead here. David is dead. David is only now able to call on God to rise in this circumstance because God made David to rise from his pit of despair. It's like God just put these new glasses, new life glasses, right on David's dead corpse of a life. And that new vision just made him stand up to live again. And now, look at how he views the situation from here, from verse 12 to the end of the psalm. What seemed like this downward spiral into darkness suddenly gets this boost right upward toward heaven. Now the psalmist asks himself in verse 13, how can a wicked person boast as though God doesn't even exist, that God doesn't see and hold him accountable. It's so obvious to him that God is going to kick this wicked guy off his own throne and humble this proud, wicked person. God will not accept such threats to his rule. So verse 14 declares confidence against all of those doubts of verses 1 to 11. God, you do see what is happening. None of it is hidden. God is not far off. He sees the mischief. He sees the desire to cause harm. He sees it. And he takes it into his own hands. Literally. Remember when Jesus said in Luke 24, after his resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus with these two guys. And they're like, how did we not see this resurrection thing coming? And Jesus is like, it's everywhere. It's all over the pages of scripture. You should have seen the crucifixion and resurrection coming. And here, right in Psalm 10, we have dripping 
life-giving gospel water to bring you out of your despair and give you new sight and new life. Jesus sees the despair of those he came to save. He sees you putting all your trust in everything else to come to your rescue. He sees you pointing the finger at all the other problems around you. He sees the oppression that you are feeling and facing. And he put it right in his own hands. And he bore your unbelief on the cross. And after he took it all upon himself, just as David asked, he rose. He arose. Hallelujah. Jesus, our Lord, arose in order to give you a new life, victorious over all your dragons. The first step of slaying the dragons in your life is slaying the dragon of your unbelief. And Jesus did that for you by dying on a cross and rising from the dead to give you his spirit so you can stop the finger pointing, stop the whining and complaining, and you can trust him to head into the battle, changed, confident in a victory. The last half of verse 14 shows us how we ought to respond to this good news. To you, to you, O Lord, the helpless commit themselves. When you stop getting caught up in all of the chaos surrounding you, thinking about the mechanics of all the problems that you're stuck in, and you fix your eyes on Jesus, you commit your trouble to him, he cares for you. He strengthens you. You're like a wandering, lost orphan, and he brings you into his family, a family that helps heal you when you're hurt and strengthen you and fight with you. It's with this confidence that the psalm ends. Finally knowing that God is alive and he sees, God really sees everything that's wicked, all the evil deeds, David now declares confidence in God that he will bring justice. Verse 15 says, God will make the wicked and evildoer unable to cause harm any longer. He will purge the entire world from their evil because God is king forever and ever, says verse 16. Finally, this believer can see through all of the wickedness, that wicked man who exalted himself into a place above God. <clears throat> and he realizes, it was an illusion. What was I thinking? The, the wicked man's boasting had hypnotized this suffering saint into believing that it was true, that God was not on his throne but he repented of such folly, and now he can clearly see God reigns over all. And this assures him that he can have peace in his trials today. And he declares with confidence in verse 18, justice is going to be done so fully that no man on the earth ever again will be able to strike terror or fear into the hearts of his, God's people. Setting your eyes on Christ might not immediately remove all of your problems, but it will slay the dragon of fear and unbelief in your heart. That dragon that wants to despair and blame others and run away and forget that God is on his throne. 
Keeping your eyes on Christ gives you the confidence to step forward in your life, to keep your eyes ahead of you and pedal hard with all that you have and knowing that is what is going to help you stay upright. Doing what is right and good by keeping your eyes on Christ. This is the gospel confidence that I want for every single one of you beloved brothers and sisters. This world is full of dragons. Governments, viruses, natural disasters, family members, pride month, neighbors, co-workers, temptations everywhere. It does us no good to pretend there aren't dragons. This world is full of them. And they're far more powerful than you realize. Many of you have battled them and come away with some pretty deep wounds. We all need to know that there are dragons in this world, but they can be slain. We're not going to kill them by running away and hiding from the problems because they're just going to follow you. If you have a problem with someone in this church and you think, well, I'll just go to another church, you're going to find the same problems there. If you think that your spouse is the one who needs to change, and if they would just Change. If you could change your spouse, then you would finally be happy. Even if you literally changed your spouse, you will still have the same problems. If your kid is misbehaving at school, switching schools or homeschooling isn't the source of fixing the problem. The only way to kill the dragons is to face them with your eyes on Christ, with lips declaring his gospel victory over them on your behalf. This is the same confidence David had when he stood before the giant Goliath. And he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It wasn't David's confidence in himself or in the Israelite army, but in God who promised to work through them and slay their dragons. It was his confidence that God could tackle this deadly warrior. Or what, listen to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. When Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw them into the fire, the fiery furnace turned seven times hotter because they refused to bow down to his image. They said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They refused to let anybody take any authority over their lives that belonged to God alone. They were willing to die for injustice, trusting that God would rescue them now or raise them to a new age. How can you have such confidence to help you in the face of the most murderous injustices, the most deadly threats, the most dragon-like attacks from other people? How do you shift your eyes off of all the boasts and mischief and onto the, the reigning and ruling, life-giving God of all nations? You need to make 
the resurrection the theme of your life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. You know, the God who rose in response to David's plea. The resurrection is the promise that no matter what blow any dragons in your life deliver you, it's not the final victory. If your husband or wife is a constant adversary, shift your eyes to Christ and know that his spirit can resurrect your marriage. If your employer keeps banging that wokeness drum and you think this is going to cost me my livelihood, trust that Christ will return and bring true justice and until then he will provide for you. If the government continues to seize more power unto itself, the government putting itself on the throne of authority over your whole life, know that God humbles the proud. The nations will perish from his land. He will kick them off the throne that they do not belong on. And he will restore, he will exalt the humble and restore the whole earth to glory. Make the resurrection the theme of your life. Remember Jesus is the resurrected and reigning king who defeated the dragon. And stand firm on those promises. Wield his sword of the spirit, that word of God, against those dragons. Sharpen your sword by memorizing scripture. Focus on those stories in scripture of God bring, rescuing people from utter despair. Or God creating life out of <clears throat> impossible nothingness. Commit your, to your memory songs that demand your soul come out of gloom and trust the God who raises the dead. Surround yourself with people who speak of the resurrection often as their only hope. It is that word of God that raises the dead. If you immerse yourself in that word, and in people who are immersed in that word, you will find God raising you from the dead. God raising you from your helplessness to become an instrument in his hand to slay dragons in this life. If you need more specific help than that, then I want to encourage you with two more things. If you need more specific support I want to get into your hands a book that's called When God, When People Are Big and God is Small. I had intended to buy a few copies just to hand out this morning. Unfortunately, Amazon's two-day shipping is very quickly becoming Amazon's four- to five-day shipping. Nobody's consistently faithful but God, right? So you come up to me after this, and uh, I'll, get, I'll order you a copy, because I want you to have God big in your life and every single other threat to be so minuscule in comparison. And I want you to know that your brothers and sisters in this church are serious about fighting your dragons with you. This summer, about 10 of us have been getting training and working together to assemble a team of biblical counselors that we can work in each other's lives to help shift our eyes off of all of our problems and back on our risen king. So this fall, we hope to have enough training that we can launch regular, repeated counseling services that you can come anytime and find help. 
But if you need help now, don't wait until then. Come to me today and I will connect you with somebody, if I can't help you, with somebody who will help slay these dragons by shifting your eyes to Christ. Don't think that you can't share your problems or that you're too ashamed. It's too embarrassing to let someone know that you are feeling so weak and that you can't overcome this battle. Keeping them to yourself, keeping these thoughts secret is only keeping yourself on the path to despair in verses 1 to 11. Bring those dragons into the light. Let us come alongside you and fight them with the sword of God's word and proclaim to your heart that Jesus rose and he is on his throne forever and ever. Yield your heart to the divine king and he will slay your dragons. Let's pray. God, I am in love with these saints. You have placed them here in this place, in this family, in this body, that together we can become something beautiful by your spirit when we keep our eyes on Jesus. I pray for those who are wandering today who are struggling, who are having such a hard time overcoming their despair, who are tempted to wander into the arms of a thousand other things that promise rescue, that promise relief. None of them will satisfy. I pray that today they see Christ. They see his face. They see his arms stretched wide, his hands bleeding as he carries the oppression they feel. And the pack would fall off their backs and they would gladly stand tall and run to Jesus every day from here forward. Give us that strength, God. Help us walk that journey together until we arrive past that River Jordan into our heavenly home where all justice is done and the tears will be wiped away. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.